Hi everyone, uh, welcome to tonight's screening. Thanks very much for coming. My name's Tim, I'm a programmer for Picture Houses. Um, this is one of a number of events that we're putting on around this film um, because we feel it's really important that as many people as possible see it and engage with the campaign, uh, which we'll be discussing more about after the film. Um, I just want to say thank you to the Bertha Foundation who have helped us put this on tonight and to uh, Dogworth, the distributors, and to the staff at the ICA. Um, so now I'll just hand you over to our host for the evening, uh, Jenny, to tell you about Between the Lines. Thanks, Tim. Um, I'm going to keep this really quick because I know that you'll all be itching to watch the film and there's someone that we're going to introduce in a minute who you'll all be much more interested in hearing from than me. But I just wanted to say a couple of words about how thrilled we at Between the Lines are to be part of this, to be hosting this evening's event. Uh, Between the Lines started off as a three-day festival uh, in March of this year organised by Dock House and the Frontline Club. And the two organisations wanted to come together to uh, investigate and explore what's going on today uh, with documentary film, investigative journalism, current affairs and new media. So we did that through three days of film screenings and panel discussions and a lot of talking, but we found at the end of it there was still a lot more to be said. So with that, we embarked on a series of follow-up events through 2013. And that brings us to tonight and why Between the Lines is hosting, well, the host of this evening's uh, screening of The Act of Killing. Uh, we're so pleased to be involved in this screening and to be bringing a film that is so daring and original and really astonishing to audiences. Uh, it really pushes the boundaries of documentary film and that's something that we're really interested in. So uh, without further ado, I said I'd keep it quick. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome the director of The Act of Killing, Joshua Oppenheimer. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you for the generous introduction. Thank you to the ICA for programming the director's cut of the film, the longer cut of the film throughout, or at least for, for now. Thank you. Um, and if you like the film tonight, this is where your friends can see the version you will see tonight, because it's, well, it's the version that's screening here. Um, you will be seeing the full director's cut of the film tonight. It's two hours and 40 minutes long. That's an hour and 10 minutes longer than your average documentary. So prepare yourselves and pace yourselves. <laughs> and stay, if you would, for the closing credits because the final piece of the story lies there. Um, I won't say very much about the film, only that the entire tradition of cinema is really dominated by movies about good versus evil, about good guys versus bad guys. But good guys and bad guys, in fact, only exist in stories and in movies, in the stories we tell ourselves to prevent, to, to, so that we can sort of escape from our most bitter truths. In reality, every act, every act of evil in our history has been committed by human beings like us, and we have very few films about how we commit evil, why we commit evil, the effects of evil on ourselves and on our societies. The Act of Killing is such a film. It's also, though I hope, a film about what it means to be a human being more broadly, what it means to have a past, how we use storytelling to create our world, and how, as part of this, we use storytelling to run away from our most painful truths. I won't say enjoy the film, but you are welcome to laugh. Audiences 
everywhere in the world do, particularly in Indonesia, and they are just as moved as those who don't. Um, you're welcome to laugh. I won't say enjoy the film. I wish you a powerful, even a magical experience, and I'll be back at the end to take your questions. Thanks. Good evening again, ladies and gents. Um, before we start the Q&A, I just want to say, first of all, that as you leave after the Q&A, um, we're going to be outside um, catching people's reactions. I'm sure a lot of you have some pretty strong thoughts on the film. Um, and we're also going to be taking some photos, um, which we're going to use in a special exhibition, uh, which will be used to show everyone that's seen the film and, um, and their reactions. Um, and also, before we start the Q&A, I'm just going to introduce Esther Kahn of TAPOL, um, with whom we're working very closely on this film, who are campaigning for the film to be used to advocate for the Indonesian go government to acknowledge what you've just seen. Um, so, Esther. Thanks, Tim. Um, so, hi, everyone. My name's Esther, and I work for TAPOL. We're a human rights NGO. And uh, this week, we're celebrating 40 years since TAPOL was founded to campaign for justice for the victims of the 1965 events. I think you'll probably agree that um, we still have some way to go. <laughs> it doesn't go down enough. Okay, I stand on my tiptoes. <laughs> All right, thank you. So millions of people were affected by the events shown in this film. And they were farmers, teachers, artists, shopkeepers, businessmen and women, union leaders, all kinds of people. And um, they all have different ideas about how to move forward. But they do all agree on one thing. The president of Indonesia should apologize for what happened and that this is the first step towards justice. They have waited a very long time for this. So this week, we're launching the Say Sorry for 65 campaign. And you can see on the screen now some of the actions that you can take uh, to show your support for the victims and to help end the silence that has lasted for almost 50 years. So if you're able to do just one thing, please fill in one of these campaign postcards that um, you'll be able to pick up on your way out later. Um, they'll be going direct to the Indonesian embassy. If you can do two things, uh, you could also go online and sign the petition. Uh, the president of Indonesia is very conscious of his international image. So international support is, is really, really needed right now to, to press for him to take action. So yeah, we'll be out in the foyer. If anybody would like to talk to us about our work on 65 uh, and West Papua and other human rights issues in Indonesia, we'll be outside later on. Thank you. Thanks, Esther. Um, and now, once again, the director of The Act of Killing, Joshua Oppenheimer, and Liz Wood, director of Dog House. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm sure there are lots of questions. Uh, but if you don't mind, first of all, I'm just going to ask uh, Joshua a couple of questions myself, just to get the evening going. 
So Joshua, we've been talking outside, and I think it would be great if you could just talk a little bit about, I mean, I know you've been involved in Indonesia for 10 years, and that you've made films there with victims as well as other people, and that you then formed this film. Just tell us how this extraordinary film came in your mind and what the process was. Yeah, I, I began this journey um, in 2001 when I went to Indonesia to make a film called The Globalization Tapes, which was a film, it was supposed to be about trade unionists, trade unionists who were grappling with issues of globalization somewhere in the world where unions had been very recently illegal. And the idea was to, through their effort to organize a union where there had not been one, to show also how issues of globalization are being dealt with in their organizing effort. And I could have really been sent anywhere in the world for that. I could have been sent to Colombia, Bangladesh, India. Those were all places that were considered. But I ended up in Indonesia in a plantation community about 50 miles from Medan, where I made the act of killing. And I knew very little about Indonesia at the time. And I was in a found myself in a community where the biggest obstacle that the plantation workers had in organizing a union was fear. Fear because their parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents had been in a union, um, a strong plantation workers union until 1965. And because of their union membership were accused of being pro-communist and then were put in concentration camps and then set, handed over to local paramilitary death squads to be killed. And they were afraid this could happen again. So I began, um, we made that film, and in it I also, in living in this plantation community, I encountered the first, one of my neighbors, who was a death squad leader, who was boastful in front of his granddaughter about how he killed, um, and in front of me. I just had gone over to his house not knowing he was a killer. I asked him what he did, had done for a living before he was a pensioner, and he said, oh, I was the, had started out as a, security guard on this plantation, but was promoted to be the manager of the plantation because I killed 200 communists here. And I said, what do you mean you killed 200 communists? And he said, well, I, they were all the, all the workers were communists because they were in a union. And then he started showing me how he did it in this kind of boastful way, not unlike the first time Anwar visits the roof. And I sort of, I guess I understood at that point that he was boasting because he's still in power. And it was a really shocking feeling. And I wondered, would other killers boast like this? So I finished that film and very quickly I came back trying to collaborate with the people with whom I'd made the globalization tapes to make a film about what had happened in 65, but also the kind of corruption that, and fear and intimidation under which the survivors still lived. And every time we would film together, the police would come and stop us. The military would come and come and stop us. And meanwhile, I remembered this one perpetrator I had filmed. And we then with, we went back to the broader Indonesian human rights community and said, should we make this film? You know, we're getting stopped by the military at every, every time we try and shoot. It's hard to shoot. It's terrifying for my Indonesian crew. It's terrifying for the survivors. It's dangerous for all of us. Maybe it's too sensitive. Maybe this is a bad idea. Or maybe if it's a good idea, maybe you have some ideas for how this can be done safely. Everyone said, no, you must not stop. You have to continue. We need a film that exposes what happened, but also, more, as importantly, that exposes the nature, what hap has happened to our whole society because the killers have not only not been brought to justice, but have been in power and have mythologized what they've done as something heroic. 
And I suppose what was really interesting was they were saying, we don't need this expose for the outside world. We know the outside world has by and large supported what happened here. We need it for Indonesians themselves. Younger Indonesians need to have pointed out for them the nature of the regime in which we live. And then one of the survivors with whom I'd made the globalization tape said, Josh, you filmed this one perpetrator, film more. They, in their boasting, an audience can see why we're so afraid. And I understood immediately she was right, and I went back to the first survivor I filmed and asked could he introduce me to others. And then I started filming every survivor, sorry, the first perpetrator I filmed and asked him could he introduce me to others. And then I filmed every perpetrator I could find across the region, across the North Sumatran plantation belt, understanding that these were stories of world historical importance that I was getting. We're talking about the deaths of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in one province that had never been documented. And nobody had really researched the killings in North Sumatra. And these men were growing old, and as they would die, the facts would disappear. And I worked my way across the region and up the chain of command until I met Anwar and beyond, in fact, to some retired army generals in Jakarta. Um, and Anwar was the 41st perpetrator I filmed. But the 40 that I filmed before I met Anwar were equally boastful, um, similarly to equally boastful both to, An uh, to Anwar, but also to the very first perpetrator I filmed. They were all that way. And within minutes of telling me what they'd done, they would usually, if they were still able-bodied enough, would say, and I can take you to the place where we did it and show you where it happened and show you how I did it. And I would say yes, because I understood that was important, a document where killings had happened and where mass graves had happened. And then I would film these things that didn't look like testimony, but looked more like kind of boastful reenactments, like the first scene with Anwar on the roof. That's kind of where he shows how he killed with wire. That was kind of typical. And by the time I'd filmed 20, 30 of these men, I understood what happened in the region. And I was found that I was really fascinated by another much more chilling story, which was about now. How do these men think I see them? How do they think people see their boasting? How do they think the neighbors, the survivors, re the, the victims' relatives to whom they boast, how do they think they see them? Why do they, how do, how do they want to be seen? How do they see themselves? These questions of the imagination, really, how do they imagine themselves? How do they think we imagine them? Seem to me ways of unlocking a whole regime. If I could answer those questions, I could understand a whole regime of impunity. So I then said, by the time I met Anwar, I was, and long before, I was saying very simply, look, you've participated in one of the biggest killings in human history. Your whole society is based on it. Your lives are shaped by it. You want to show me what you've done. I want to understand the nature of what you've done, but also what it means for you and your society. So show me what you've done in whatever way you wish. I'll film the process, I'll film the reenactments, I'll put it together, and we will make a film that shows how you imagine these things and how you want to be imagined. A kind of documentary of the imagination, actually. And I expected to make a film with many, many killers and many different killers from across the region. And I lingered on Anwar, and we can talk more about that in a bit, because somehow this process of embellishment and suggestion, suggest these sort of more and more complicated dramatizations seem to reveal something about his conscience and how we tell stories to live, to justify our actions. 
It's so interesting, actually. I, I mean, I can't imagine how you made the leap from simply letting them reenact as on the on the roof into a full-blown um, fictionalized version of of uh, their scenes, which. To me, when you say a documentary of the imagination, it's the single most insightful and clever thing about the film is that actually through that, you then begin to see insight into the characters as, as they go. And as you were talking about the last 15 minutes of the film, could you just describe that? Because that's been quite controversial and people have said various comments about it. Yeah, um... I think that, and actually, because we were talking about the last, the end of the film, and we've been talking, I've been talking about it quite a bit in the last few days. I watched it from the back to sort of see what I, I could find words for what I think is going on there. But I think what's interesting in the last act of the film, if you like, from the burning of the village to the end, somehow Anwar started to experience some kind of doubt and remorse. I mean, before that, he's talking about his nightmares, but the, the first of all, the boundaries between present and past start to get blurred. He's seeing the children of the perpetrators, the grandchildren of the perpetrators uh, crying a little bit. It looks maybe more traumatic than it, than it was for them, surely. But he sees them, the children of the perpetrators in the aftermath of a fiction shoot, and he's saying now they're going, now the, their village is going to be burned down and they will curse us forever. It's like there the boundaries between present and past are blurring, and I think it's a crucial moment. And at that moment, then the fiction scenes somehow start to take over because they, have a, they bear a bigger force, a bigger poetic force, a bigger emotional truth than the observational scenes of them making a documentary. And so we get this kind of fever dream where one fiction scene sort of leads to another in this kind of d downward spiral, this descent into the abyss. And I think what's interesting is he, he feels guilty and the guilt makes him angry. And he and instead of going to remorse he directly, he sort of despairingly throws himself into the re, these re, awful reenactments of what he did in that office, first with the torturing of Pang and then the killing under the table. And then and the killing is hard and it's painful for him, and he blames the victim for some somehow for what's hard about it. And so he gets worse. He becomes, m and and he kills the teddy bear in what is for me the most harrowing scene in the film. And then he blames Hermann, saying, "You're the barbaric one." And sort of out of this sort of blaming the victim and self pity, he finds himself almost inadvertently in a place that he's been many times in the film before, in the role of the victim. If you think of the very first scene where he's on the roof with the wire. And then he's do dancing the cha-cha-cha. He has, that's the very first day I ever filmed with him. The very first scene I ever filmed with him. And he has wire on his neck when he's dancing the cha-cha-cha because after he shows how he kills with wire, he says, now let me, it's not in the film, but he said, now let me show you how the victims would die. And so he's been playing the victim throughout the film and for different reasons, drawn to his pain, perhaps trying to tame these horrifying nightmares, I'm not sure. But at the end, somehow he, out of self-pity, he becomes in his mind maybe the victim's victim and he plays the victim. And it's a long, protracted scene and by the end of it, he's experiencing some kind of real trauma that leaves him speechless. And then to run away from that, the next thing he does was to come up with this 
cleansing scene, which became more and more over the top as he was planning it, which was this born free waterfall number where he imagines his own redemption in heaven where the victims are killing, you know, thanking him for killing them and sending them to heaven. And he watches that and it delivers a certain solace and he says, yes, this is so powerful and beautiful, but the fantasy doesn't somehow dispel the pain. The pain is there. The, the pain still festers. The wound still festers. And then he says, okay. And because of that, he's distracted by it or he needs to go back to it or he needs to address it or something. And he says, now let me see the scene where I play the victim. And in that moment, he watches it and I think he realizes, oh, this is going to be tough. And so he calls his grandchildren in almost like human shields, I think. And this is, of course, my reading of it. But And he to reassure himself and by telling them it's only a movie, maybe he can reassure himself that it's only a movie. And then the kids think it is only a movie. They walk out. They get bored. They've, he's been making this movie with me for a long time. They're bored. They go back to sleep. And now he's sort of naked. He's defenseless. And then he tries one last thing, which I think is... Some people have talked about how sincere is the end of the film. For me, if there's, a, if there's an insincere moment at the end of the film, it's here. He tries this thing where he tries to give me what maybe he thinks I want because generically the camera is this kind of tool for extracting confessions. And so he says, gives me this kind of generic confession, now I feel what my victims feel. And maybe he is feeling something there, but he's surely not feeling what his victims felt. And just to me it felt untrue and like he was trying to get off the hook and using that confession in the same way that he used the kids and used the waterfall. And I thankfully was not distracted by anything technical in that moment and I could just answer from my heart and I said, no, you don't. And I think it's somehow at that moment the trauma that was building in that scene where he plays the victim, he's forced to see that he'll never, no amount of filmmaking, no amount of making a beautiful family movie about mass killing will bridge the abyss between the stories he's told himself about who he is to, ju to live with himself and the unspeakable horror of what he's done to people. It's, it and it's that that he's choking on at the end. And just yeah. watching the very final scene, I had this feeling that he's totally... He's trying in his poised and charismatic way to tell me what happened there, because that's what I've asked him to do. Tell me what happened here. And he suddenly finds himself something totally inscrutable happening to him. He suddenly finds himself retching. Maybe he's trying to vomit up the ghosts that haunt him only to find that he is the ghost because he is his past. We are our pasts. There's nothing to come up. But he's like he has no idea what's happening to him. I was watching his poise, and some, some viewers, oh, I think only a minority, but some viewers will think because of his poise that he's somehow faking the end. The end, the, the shooting on the end is, of course, the occasion that allows those feelings to come up, just as throughout the film... The shooting is the occasion that allows these emotions to come up that wouldn't come up otherwise, but I think somehow he's totally taken by surprise by what's happening to his body, and he's trying to hold himself together and put his hands in his pocket and, and keep talking and continue, thinking maybe Josh can edit this out. I don't know what he's thinking there. But it was a terrible moment, and I wanted to put my arm on him and say it's okay, which is this stupid thing that we Americans say in our boundless, naive optimism. And I wanted to say it's okay. And then I had this awful realization that he's retching because he's terrified at the, co the consequences of it not being okay. And nothing will make it okay. 
and just to get him up on that roof and be a director and put up the few practical light bulbs we put up so that the place was bright enough for the camera to see, I had to blind myself to the meaning of what had happened there too. Or and and, and that, that is what the film is about, actually, how we all, all do that. Uh, that leads me to my last question before I'm going to throw it to the audiences. What, what, in an ideal world, do you want people to walk away from this film with? Since I've given you two such long answers, I'll try and give you a brief one. <laughs> um, I want the, f I guess the film holds up a dark mirror, first to Anwar, and then to Indonesian society as a whole. And I hope that we, in spending this time with Anwar, will see ourselves in that dark mirror too both as individuals and as a society that depends for every single item of clothing that we are wearing, for everything that I'm touching right now, that depends on men like Anwar to enforce conditions of cruelty everywhere that everything we buy is produced. That's an excellent answer. Any questions, anyone? This question down to you, please. Hello. Um, I greatly enjoyed the film, but could you tell us, has Anwar seen the version of the film that we've seen, and what do you think he sees when he sees it? Yeah. Um, Anwar saw the film on the 1st of November and last year, and it was a very painful experience. I think he knew it would be a very painful experience because, of course, he's seen what's in the film and he remembers what's in the film. And so for the longest time when I was finishing the film, last spring, last summer, I was saying, look, it's getting done. Can I come and show it to you? And he was saying, no, I don't want to see it yet. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. And then when it came out, it was a very big story in Indonesia. Indonesia's biggest news magazine created a special double edition of the magazine in response to the film with 75 pages of testimony about from killers that they found all around the country, just like Anwar. They collected hundreds of test pages in just a few weeks, and they edited it down to 75. This was the, f and they published this special double edition of this magazine. It was the really breaking of 47-year silence in the Indonesian media about the killings. Anwar found himself at the center of this story and then said, Josh, I now want to see the film. I, I need to see the film. And so then, but by then, I could no longer safely go to Indonesia. So I, and I still can't safely go to Indonesia. And I, so we arranged for Anwar to go to a place with very good internet connection where I could be with him on Skype throughout the screening. So he could talk to me, he could stop the film, he could talk to me whenever he wanted. And he watched the film, and it was a very emotional experience. I think he knew it would be, and I knew it would be. It was a terrible moment. At the end, where I waited for him to say something, he was very emotional. He was crying, he was silent, and then he said, well, Josh, it's an honest film, and it shows what it's like to be me, and now that I've seen it, I know what it is, and I will remain loyal to it, because this is a very honest film. This is, this is, this is, shows the things I wanted to show, somehow. And then we sat in silence for a very long time, and there wasn't much to say. And I think he felt, I think, I, I, I don't know what he felt. I felt that it was like I was sitting next to him on that fishing platform in the dark sea looking out in the darkness. And it's his darkness, but it's all of our darkness.
Thanks. It's so interesting, actually, because you clearly have empathy with Anwar. I, I don't know how you feel about uh, the other characters, Adi and, and uh, Herman, but <clears throat> I think, in a way, that gives the film humanity, and it uh, makes accessible what is otherwise uh, an operatic nightmare. And it, almost, it, when you say it's a mirror, it's because we, well, at least I, I don't know about the rest of the audience, go like that with him, like, oh, he's, oh, no, he's awful. You go through the whole process with him. And then the most chilling thing is that you're constantly seeing that contemporary society <coughs> is actually continuing this violence and that he has a, a respected position within that. It's a completely chilling vision. Um, and I think his, if he was not in some way accessible then it would be almost unbearable. I don't know what the rest of the audience thinks. So any more questions? Anyone? Yes, the lady in red. Thank you. And you next. I just can't say enough how great this film is, and especially, you know, because this is quite emotional for me because uh, my father is, was one of the victims, and um, my mother still lives in fear now in Indonesia. Right. So I beg the people here now to at least sign the petition and spread the word. You know, you can do it via Facebook, Twitter, or just anything, really. Um, a question, actually, for um, Joshua. Um, you know how Anwar Congo was transformed in the end, which is like such a great ending, in a way. Did you expect it? Did you um, plan it, or at least expect it? And um, another question is how... Um, how involved were they, were Anwar Congo and the others in, in the um, acting? Like, did they voluntarily say, okay, now I'm, I'm, I will act as the victims and the victim victims or something like that? Or did you ask them to do so? Thanks. Um, Anwar was playing the, well, first of all, thank you for your comment and for t telling us about you. Um, Anwar was, as I said earlier, Anwar was playing the victim from the very beginning he was throwing himself into that role because I think if you kill a thousand people with wire, you're watching every single time people die and that image must be like burned in his conscience. And just, and I think in this moment in the nightmare scene, the scene in the plantation in the middle of the night where he says, all my nightmares come from this eyes that I didn't shut. Of course, there he's lying to himself. Um, the way we worked was that they could, we would together think of what scenes were meaningful to Anwar, what scenes were meaningful to the paramilitary group. The paramilitary group, had, Panchasila Youth, had celebrated the massacre of Kampung Kolam and commemorates it every year. There's a monument there. The TV, TVRI produces a little TV show every year in North Sumatra about it. It's kind of the local version of Lubang Buaya, if you know what that is. It's an event that's been mythologized to justify the killings that followed, kind of the, the sort of beginning of it. Um, it that, will be more me that will be meaningful to the Indonesians here, but I see there's some of you. Um, the, but basically, we would talk about what, what would be meaningful. So showing what happened in the office was really important. And then Anwar wanted to do it as a gangster scene because he would say, it's not in the film, the line, but he would often feel like a gangster walking off the screen. And it was an office for gangsters. It was an office where gangsters were committing crimes and then at the time of the killings, torturing and killing people. Um, the massacre of the village was something 
that was obviously they needed to dramatize because it's the core of their movement. Anwar's nightmares were important. Anwar's vision of his redemption was important. The cowboy, all the scenes where Hermann's in drag, with the exception of the musical numbers, were part of the nightmare scene somehow. Um, there were these kind of simple, crude reenactments that were, you can see from the makeup they're wearing, is inspired by the propaganda film they watched, but was ultimately really reenactments of what happened in the office. Um, so it was pretty organic what scenes were important to them. Uh, all of the scenes, the only scenes that had a script were the nightmare scenes. And then the newspapers, the newspaper boss, Ibrahim Sinek, had also been a screenwriter, a film producer, and the head, actually, for many years of the Indonesian Film Festival. And he, Anwar said, why don't you write the script for my nightmare scene? And they said, what is, the night, what is your nightmare, Anwar? And he said, well, basically, it's a victim takes revenge. So they ripped off the plot of Samson and Delilah, which was one of their favorite films from the 60s, where Samson kills Delilah's father, so Delilah takes revenge. Here, Anwar kills a communist, the daughter, a communist woman takes revenge, it's very simple. But some of it's done as a cowboy scene with elephants, some of it's done in the studio, some of it's done in the, mon the jungle with the monkeys. And that scene had a script, but as you see when Anwar has a script, and they use the Indonesian state television soap opera studios in Medan and the, and the Indonesian state television soap opera crew to work with in, in, in the studio. But you can see that when they have a script, Anwar is very stiff. He can't deliver that line, for example, I thought I killed you. It, it just comes out wrong. So any, it was clear any time Anwar was actually going into anything where there should be any real feeling, he would need a much smaller crew, a much more intimate set, and I would become his crew. So the film noir scenes in the, in the, in the last third of the film, last quarter of the film, those, it was a very small set, it was totally improvised, and it's difficult with that kind of low-key lighting where it's just dark and shadow and little patches of light. It's difficult to improvise in that kind of space because you step out of the light and you're in the dark usually. So my cinematographer and I worked out a sort of placement of shadows where more or less they could be free to move so that Anwar could direct, devise the scene, direct it, at call action, either I call cut or he calls cut, call cut, assess the scene and start again all in one shot, usually shooting with two cameras. So there were these different ways of working. Um, and I didn't, I think, I, I think the film, to go to your second question, and it was very important to me that the ideas all come from them. It was really important. So even the fish scene, that was, those were moments from the shooting of a musical number. Anwar and I found the fish together. The musical number was a, uh, was Pe one of Anwar's favorite songs is Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is. And there's these spoken verses which are about disappointment and Anwar's felt disappointment that he never rose through the ranks of the paramilitary movement or politics the way his friends did. And so he had replaced these spoken verses which are things like first time I fell in love, the first time I went to the circus, with the first time I committed a burglary, the first time I killed someone. And it was, it was very funny and very strange and very surreal, but it was ultimately both too long and too thin to be in the film. It didn't have the, enough density. So, but there were these moments of pure poetry that I sort of harvested from that material where Hermann sits and sings that song, um, the very final shot in the film. 
and where it was just to me moments of how that are allegories for how we get lost in our fantasies, in our sto- the stories we tell, sort of this ongoing human <coughs> folly at the edge of the abyss. So for me, that's what those are. But to come now to your second question, Anwar was, uh, I think I resisted actually trying to bring Anwar to some kind of place of recognition. And if the film is, uh, it was not ever my intention to produce a kind of psychodrama. Psychodrama is the work of therapists. It would be unethical to do that uh, in the sense that a therapist has to have their loyalty totally to their patient. That's the role of a therapist. My loyalty was to a community of survivors on behalf of whom, with whom, in collaboration with whom, in solidarity with whom I was trying to expose a regime of impunity, mainly to other Indonesians. And I was filming the boasting about killing, the the justification about killing, the celebration of killing, as sort of allegories for impunity, allegories for what happens when no one's held to account. And I think I didn't see something for quite a while. I didn't see what was going on the whole time, which is that the justification of mass killing may be a symptom that the person feels no guilt, but it may just as well be a sign that the person is too af- is too afraid to admit that what they were what they did was wrong. It can be a symptom of remorse, or not, if not remorse, a conscience. And I think if I I, I think in hindsight, if, if I had killed, if you had killed, I'm not saying we necessarily would kill, but we're blessed never to have to find out. But if we had killed, and if we had opened to us the opportunity to justify what we'd done, because we'd never been forced to admit it was wrong, because the government was providing us with an excuse, which is what Adi says you need. If you kill, it's fine, he says, but then come up with a good excuse so you can live with yourself. I'm sure we would justify what we had done. We would cling to that excuse for dear life. And if you're not secure in that excuse, justification can spill into celebration. And I think the paradox at the heart of the film is somehow that the celebration of mass killing, which appears appears to be a symptom of the lack of remorse, but may in fact be its opposite, be the opposite, be a sign of remorse. And the tragedy there is that even if it's a sign of remorse, it demands that you commit further evil. Because if you're celebrating mass killing because you're terrified of admitting that it was wrong, then you must oppress your victims or their families so that they never challenge your version of the story. And then you feel justified in stealing their land and terrorizing them. And then even more chillingly, if then some of the government says, kill again, now kill that person. Well, having killed the first person and told myself that it had been told that it was justified. If the government says, now kill that person for the same reason, well, if I don't do it, it's like admitting it was wrong the first time. So there's this downward spiral of moral corruption founded on some kind of original sin, or the first decision to commit evil. So I think when we talk to killers in Indonesia and we ask them, why did you kill? Of course they'll tell you the excuse that they've been telling themselves ever since. And the trick is to somehow try and find out maybe why they killed the first time. And I think the insight that I gleaned in making the film is that everybody I filmed, it seemed, killed for power, for money, for the chance to eliminate some enemies, some people they didn't like, with the sanction of the state. And 
all the way up, I think that's the case, all the way up to General Suharto. And they might talk about the risk that communism may have posed and what the communists might have done if they hadn't been killed, but that's justification and not the real reason that they killed the first time and which triggers this downward spiral. So finally, to answer your question, I wasn't <laughs> trying to get to the ending. By the time I filmed that very final scene on the roof, however, I, Anwar had already choked once. You notice in the final scene where he says, let me see the scene where I have wire around my neck, the second to last scene, really. You don't see him with the wire around his neck. You see him getting smacked around and tortured. And the reason is when the wire went around his neck, he choked for the first time I'd ever, I only saw at that time and at the end. He started to have this kind of sympathetic automatic reaction where his throat tightened and he started gagging and choking. And he ran out of the room and he choked and retched and then came back and sat in silence for a long time and I assumed that was somehow the end of the film. And when I shot the final scene, I in fact was trying to get back to that office this was about six months later. His hair had grown out. It's black when he's watching at the end. Then six months later, it had grown out. It's white again. I was trying the whole time over these five years to get access to that <laughs> office again where I filmed the first scene. We were never allowed back in. And it, it was some superstition of the owner. I don't think they had a clue what had happened there. It was just we couldn't get in. And just on the very last day, in fact, it was total serendipity, the owner, a new tenant came in. And a new shop opened, and they were happy to have us come back in. And so we said, okay, Anwar, please just take us through the space and tell us what happened here. But somehow the process, and so he's trying to, in a composed way, talk, talk us through what happened. And that's if there's a sense that he looks staged there, it's because as I asked him to do, he's trying to present, here is where I killed, we tortured and killed people. This is the, how, the thing we used. And... Somehow, I think the whole five-year process meant that that pain was right at the surface and came out in a way that shocked me and shocked him. Absolutely. I'm very curious to ask the lady who asked the question. Do you think that your parents would react in the way that Joshua intends the film to have uh, that effect? Well, I'm not sure because my father, I think, my, my father passed away. <coughs> uh, my father wasn't murdered, but he was severely tortured and he was full of anger. And I don't think, I'm, I'm not really sure how he would react, but I think if my mother sees this film, I think she will, you know, I mean, I mean she'll, she sees a lot more, I mean, she's a lot calmer and she's, um, I think she, she will be, yeah, I think I think her reaction would be like what you expect in a way. Okay, shall we have the question down here now, please? While that's going down, I think that you know you, you're always referring to um, <coughs> well, <coughs> but actually, Adi's a very different character, isn't he? Do you feel the same kind of empathy? Can I say with him because he seems to me to be entirely unrepentant. Yeah, uh, Adi, I, I, Adi, I mean, I, I try as a rule to empathize with every human being I meet. I think empathy is not a zero-sum game. It's the beginning of love, and you can't really have too much of it. But Adi is someone who, Adi is someone who 
comes into the film saying all Adi really angered me and you can see him leave you see the way our relationship ends in the film when we're fighting in the car Adi angered me because I think I I could bear and even care for Anwar because he's honest and even when he's saying not talking nonsense his face is betraying that he doesn't believe what he's saying and that's the thread that holds the film together is the evolution of Anwar's doubt and Anwar is not just Anwar. It's also not a, Anwar's arc is not just holding Anwar's personal development. He's becoming also a vessel for a whole society and for a whole regime in the way the film's constructed and edited. But Adi comes into the film in the middle of the process. Adi, uh, Anwar, I knew he existed, but Anwar didn't want me to meet him for a long time. I think until he was quite sure that he was the star of the film. And... <laughs> Finally, he gives me contact details for Adi. Adi's legal name is only Adi, and there's thousands and thousands of Adis in Jakarta, so it was hopeless to try and find him just on the basis of a name. But he gives me his details, and Adi comes up. And in fact, the first time I saw Adi in the world was when he's coming down the steps from the plane with the shirt that says apathetic. And I thought, my gosh, could it be that that's him? My production manager met him in Jakarta, and she taps me on the shoulder. Like, that's him. Follow that one with the camera. And I was like, no. With the t-shirt that says apathetic? Is it possible? <laughs> and he could be my neighbor in suburban Maryland where my dad, where I grew up with my dad. Anyways, he comes into the film saying all the things I was dying for someone to say. That the killings were wrong, the propaganda's a lie, the government should apologize, and so forth. And I took it at face value, and I was prepared for the film to go in a completely different direction from that point. I said, Adi, tell these things to Anwar. Let's see how he reacts. And I know Anwar has these nightmares, and he'll tell you about that, and let's see what you think about that, and let's see what happens. So they go fishing together. They have that talk. But I think Adi... I, I, I overestimated Adi, or I misunderstood, took him at face value in a way that I shouldn't have. I think Adi, what he's really doing by saying all these things that are sort of critical and modern and are talked about in places like Jakarta, but not in Medan, is showing off to the others. Look, I'm so sophisticated and critical and so tough that I can live with myself even though I know it's wrong. And so in a way, he's showing off, if not his total lack of conscience, the death of his conscience, that to cope with this, he has killed off his own conscience. There's a great expression in Indonesia, in Indonesian, mati rasa. It's like he's showing off his numbness, showing off the hollow moral and moral hollowness of his life in a way. His daughter is a soap opera star and, and, a, and they go to the mall and that's what they do, but there's a kind of numbness to the whole thing. And I think that, I think that it's not true to say that, you know, in the, the textbook definition of a psychopath is someone who feels no empathy, can feel no empathy. If there's anyone in the film who's close to that, Maybe it's him. But at the same time, he's still clearly wrestling with all these different justifications. You know, he keeps spiraling back to different forms of denial. And, you know, tr even by trying to say, you know, you know, human rights discourse is hypocritical, as he says in the car with me, he's struggling with something, but it's not give causing him the pain that it causes Anwar. Instead, he copes by living this totally hollow, <laughs> numb, Life, and I don't know whether he was always that way and that's why he was able to kill or whether he became that way so that he could live with what he's done. I don't know and I'll never know. Interesting. Or could kill again. <laughs> <laughs>
Sorry. And he could kill again. He has killed since the 60s. Hi, thanks very much for showing us your film. Can I ask a similar question about Herman, who he was, where he came from, and, and what effect the film had on him? And just quickly, another one while I have the microphone. Obviously, in the credits, I saw a number of people, there were many people credited as anonymous. Can you tell us a bit about, about why that was? I'll, um, yeah. Herman was is on sort of Anwar's protege, sidekick, friend. Herman had been in a Panchasila youth theater group that had closed down before I arrived and didn't exist anymore. But he had, and if it had existed, I surely would have involved them. But Herman had been, had played, it's all men in the Panchasila youth theater group, and he liked Shakespeare's Globe. He would play, the women's roles were played by men. And he would play this kind of matronly storyteller. And Anwar had thought that was funny and had liked that and thought it was good for the film because it was fun and strange and neat. But Herman was a, is an extortionist, a gangster, had been throughout the 90s a kind of rising star in Panchasila youth, uh, had been allied with a gangster who's sort of hit a glass ceiling, ceiling and didn't, so Hermann never quite became as powerful as he might have. And Hermann, but I think there's an honesty to Hermann. And I think Hermann along the way fell, you know, I mean, he, he had been an actor before in this Panchasila Youth Theater Group, but he fell in love with acting. And he developed an actor's loyalty to the truth. It's something every good actor has. That if an actor is to do a good job acting out a dramatic situation, they have to understand, at least they have to understand the moral, the moral and the poetic truth of the situation, if not the political truth. And so Hermann becomes this force somehow in the film where he's constantly bringing back, bringing Anwar back to confront the truth. And we see it again and again. We see it in the scene where uh, he's feeding the meat. He's feeding Anwar the organs of his own body. We see it in the scene where he plays the mother of the teddy bear. We see it in the scene at the end where he's torturing Anwar. Um, and I think Hermann, when Hermann saw the film, he loves the film. And he uh, was very angry that he feels very alienated from Panchasila Youth, which officially doesn't like the film. And Herman, I said, how did you, when he saw it, I said, how did you feel about your campaign? He said, it's wonderful, but I'm so glad I didn't win because if I won, I'd definitely be in jail saying all those things. I said, how do you feel? Anwar was very sarcastic about him, though, wasn't he? He said he was. Yeah, Anwar's picking on him the whole time. He's picking on him the whole time. And they, they have this kind of, I mean, in the editing of the film, there's a shorter version of the film, which is playing in, in cinemas less brave than the ICA. And they are. In that version, Herman's role is less. He has there's less space for him to develop as a character. In this version, we really edited him to be Anwar's wife somehow. To be Anwar's, they're married. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a conscious thing. We never thought of it that way. But we realized it when in the campaign scene, there's a very funny extra moment with Herman's wife that we tried to bring in because it was a darling, and we realized no, Herman can't have a wife. Herman's married to Anwar. <laughs> and in the shorter version of the film. That moment can be there. So if you want to see the shorter version, you can go and see that one extra moment with Herman that's not in his. And what about the anonymous? The anonymous is, yeah, I and mean your this anonymous director. Yeah, this. 
this film was, first of all, has been really welcomed in Indonesia as an Indonesian film, in a way, because it's clear that it was made by a vast number of Indonesians, and these people have been my family over these last eight years of making it, and they've been, they're the bravest, most creative, loving, committed people I've ever known. They worked on this film for years and years, knowing from the beginning that they would unless there was real change in Indonesia, not be able to put their names on it. I would like nothing more than to change the end credits and put all their names there. I would like nothing more for the change to happen in Indonesia that would allow that me to change the end credits of this movie. And the saddest thing about bringing out the film is that not only can't their names be here, but in this day of, day of Instagram and Twitter, they can't, anonymous, my anonymous co-director can't present the film with me. He was my production manager, my assistant director, my uh, second camera, my editing assistant, and my main creative sounding board throughout the process. And when it was finally time to do the credits, yes, I was the director of the film, but I felt this man had given me his life and his whole family had worked on the film. And then, of course, there's people who have much smaller roles, like the Wranglers and the people in the sound studio, but it was unsafe for them too to put their names on the film. And what was the role, what was your relationship uh, with Christine Singh? Yeah, Christine was a long-term collaborator until about 2007. So she came on a, she was, came on, when I started the film, I started it alone, but we had been working <laughs> together very closely as part of a filmmaking collective in London that was, we called Vision Machine. We made the globalization tapes together, and the film that I made in Indonesia before this. And then she came on and played a wonderful role on, on one of the five really big shoots. And then, but she then said afterwards that she'd had enough of shooting with, there and doing this. And she then has been, you know, she's watched she watched rough cuts of the film. She was also a sounding board, but because she had been in the role as a true co-director for some months at the beginning of the process. I felt that that should be respected still. Generous, very unusual. Um, for directors to give requests. How long did the edit take, actually? It was a, there was 1,400 hours of material, really 1,200 <coughs> core hours of material. And it took three years. It takes a year to watch yeah. it, that much yeah. material. And... Um, it was two years, there was, sorry, 15 months in London with two editors working. I was, lived in London until 2011. And uh, there were 15 months with two editors working side by side, cutting six days a week, cutting uh, this material down to 23 hours of edited scenes. And then we went with that material to a final 10 months of editing in Denmark, which produced what you've seen today. Extraordinary. And uh, <clears throat> we have to end soon. Can we just take this one from this gentleman? Can we take this one too because she's been... Can we take two more? We'll, we'll do two questions. Okay, I just said you've had your hand up. Maybe Sorry. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, the, the film visually is so impact. It's incredible. Like, And, uh, well, I've been to Indonesia as well, so like I could relate to a lot of the scenes. Like, I think you depict the... the the streets and like the atmosphere very well but 
I have two like comments, and one of them is sort of a question. The first of all, I was so intrigued by that by that uh, image that you have on your back, and I would like if you could explain it a little bit more. Like, tell me what uh, I think it comes from a dream of of Anwar, but if you could develop that a bit more, I would appreciate it. And um, the other thing is that the other actor, the the one that is not Anwar, but Herman. No, not Ari. Her Herman is the big guy, right? Yeah, Ari. Ari, yeah. yeah. There's a scene that really stick to my to my mind that it's when he's like jogging with his wife and, uh, and daughter. When he's in the shopping mall. Yeah, yeah, exercising exactly. No, oh, no. Yeah, there's a machine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, and the bag boys that I suppose is him is is saying all the things that he did to to the people. But that was pretty horrid, like even more than the actual representations of the killing. And and I was wondering, because you said that he was like the closest to a sociopath, if that was sort of a way that you choose to point your point of view and show him as a sociopath by setting that voice over there when he was jogging with his wife. I think that Adi is able to tell that to give this kind of Old Testament litany of tortures and ways of killing with a coldness that made it serve as a voiceover with that particular quality. But I don't think that scene is about him per se. He, it's, it's somehow for me, it is my point of view. It is about how it is my point of view. It's also in the Dead Animal Museum, the, where they, the final little tab montage of dead, near-extinct animals wrapped, doubly dead, now suffocated in plastic. Um, this kind of... It's a vision in which we destroy everything we touch. And we're almost helpless to do so. And I don't say that you, 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 me, we're all individually responsible. But somehow maybe we're collectively responsible because in the, insofar as, as I said earlier, we depend on these kind of men everywhere that a sweat that everywhere in the world to keep labor cheap, to keep our consumer society going. People say, what can the West do about this? Well, we can certainly go and sign the petition asking Indonesian government to say sorry, and we should. But we also should remember and have no illusions that the military dictatorship, the regime of The, the genocide, the military dictatorship, the regime of gangsters that allows also Western corporations to break strikes, to um, seize land. This is the West's vision for Indonesia. And it's an image of consumer society. It's an image of a mall that could be Whiteley's in Bayswater. It, it's haunted by the devastation that makes it possible. And that devastation actually involves murder. Um, the fish uh, I was saying was a location that Anwar chose for the a musical number based on kind of is that all there is um, and for me it has you know the fish was a seafood restaurant in the 90s it closed 80s and 90s it closed down in the Asian economic crisis and it sits there sadly the product of human fantasy decomposing witnessing the ongoing folly of us and I say us not just them and 
there's one thing I should say about that fish. That fish is, that lake behind the fish is the single most important site, location in human history. It's called Lake Toba. Have any of you ever heard of it? Apart from, do you know why it's important? It was a super volcano that exploded 50 to 75,000 years ago and caused a volcanic winter so severe that the millions of human beings that had populated the earth in the nearly million years of our evolution up to that point were wiped out down to a single band of between 1,000 to 10,000 people living somewhere. And geneticists can look at everybody's DNA in this room and see that we have no more than 50 to 75,000 years of evolutionary divergence between us, that we all evolved from this single band of survivors from this super catastrophe. This is called the Toba bottleneck, according to this what evolutionists call the Toba bottleneck. The species went through a bottleneck, just as if you were to try and repopulate the black rhinos from the few that are not in that museum. You would ha they would also have gone through a human-generated bottleneck. So they are literally dancing their danse macabre at the edge of the abyss. That's, that's the fish. That's not in the film. That's extraordinary. Um, yeah, yeah, I got... <laughs> this may have to be the last question, I'm afraid. Good, thank you. <laughs> um, first of all, thank you so much for making this film. You don't know how big this, the impact of your film. Um, and it's very difficult for Indonesians to get involved or even to talk about this issue um, openly. And this is very important, this film, particularly for my daughter. Um, we were laughing actually before we came to this um, um, screening outside that we very not very often we spend time together and she said mom this is how we spend time together <laughs> have a bonding time between mom and daughter watching a killing film she said <laughs> but i said this is, will be a good one for you i said especially because we've been brainwashed with with so many film um, with suharto's version uh, of it but some of you also probably seen already a film, um, film in, 70s, in the 70s, Years of Living Dangerously, which taken uh, the plot in the Philippines. So I very much um, applaud you for your courage and bravery to do this and even make yourself banned <laughs> to come <laughs> to return to Indonesia. I, I, I can understand that. Um, but I would like to ask you, when you developed this film since the beginning, uh, what was the intention actually? Were you involved or in communication with Tapel since the beginning or it was developed afterwards? Um, and I, I fully support um, the call or uh, the petition for the president to say sorry, but um, it, it takes more than sorry. Um, and it's so complicated. Um, we've been through the reconciliation forum, mimicking the South African approach, but it didn't work. Yeah, well, and it was stopped by the by the military, basically. Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I would like to know what uh, will be. Do you know how the implications and what will be the implications uh, of yeah. this? Thank you. I mean, the film, the film has, yeah, I. I my main motivation, if there was one key thing that I never lost hold of, I, mean, I think the human dimension, the humanity of the film, whatever we want to say, that's me. That's who I am. So you're seeing me. You're seeing a very intimate part.
part of me. But the motive, and I can only just be me, ever. I'm only me. But, so that is sort of separate from what motivated me to do this film. What motivated me to do this film was I worked in Indonesia with a community of survivors who were basically not allowed to say what had happened to them, were terrified, terrorized into silence, and the perpetrators were boasting. And I felt, I felt this is as though I've wandered into Germany and the not 50 years on, and the Nazis had won and were still in power. And I felt that this was such an important story. My own family survived the Holocaust, but only just. And, no, my stepmother's family survived only just. My father's family escaped, but just at the last minute. And I felt that this, it just seemed like such an important story that I had to give it whatever it took of my life, even if it was a decade or whatever it would be, or dangerous. And, but the motive was somehow to expose to other Indonesians the nature of the regime they were living in and the lie that they had been told about it and that they were telling themselves about it. Because many more people, many people will say they don't know what happened, but actually know, but have been too afraid to admit that they know. Ariel Harianto, a wonderful Indonesian writer, has talked about how state terror is at its most effective when you no longer even realize you're afraid anymore. You just, your thoughts are censored. What's possible is limited. And so I was in dialogue with Tapel from the beginning, but more than that, I was in dialogue with Contras, with the National Human Rights Committee, people on the National Human Rights Commission, the Alliance of Independent Journalists in Jakarta, and various Indonesian organizations with whom I made this film. And the, or in solidarity with whom I made this film and in collaboration with whom I made this film. So I think that saying sorry is a first step, but it's only a first step because until, until the government admits it's wrong and not some, until the government admits that mass killing and the whole regime built on it is not something heroic and beautiful, but actually the contrary, then there can be no effort to rewrite to, to, to actually rewrite, to write a truthful school curriculum, history curriculum in Indonesia. They still tell the same lies in school. Um, there can be no effort to have truth and reconciliation if the truth isn't being acknowledged. You can't have reconciliation without truth. And I guess I'd finally say that what the film has come to Indonesia it's had a much bigger impact than I ever dared hope. It took me a decade to make this film. And when I started, no one had mobile phones. Now everyone's on Twitter and iPhone and Blackberry and Facebook. And I felt, gosh, Indonesia's moving on. Why am I not? Why aren't I? What's wrong with me? No one will care about this by the time it comes out. But I was wrong. And somehow the film has come to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes pointing at the king and saying, look, the king is naked. And actually, many people who had been saying they didn't know knew all along, but were too afraid to say so. And once it's been said so forcefully and by the perpetrators themselves, the ve so emotionally, the very men who ought to be, if it were truly heroic, enjoying the fruits of their victory, end up, we see them at the end of the film, yes, they've escaped justice, but they've not escaped punishment. They're destroyed by what they've done. I don't think there's anyone in this room who would 
swap a day of their life. Most of us would rather be dead than live out the rest of our lives as Anwar. So I think somehow the film has triggered this opening in Indonesia and where the media is now reporting about what happened. They're investigating what happened. They're talking about it as mass killing. They're, and then a whole generation of younger Indonesians, like your daughter, are starting to want to know more. They're starting to want to make their own films. They're wanting to write books. They're wanting to investigate. They're wanting to ask their parents what happened, really. And they're trying. There's also, and I, I think this is quite important, there's a movement to recover what was lost. Because a whole culture, radical culture of anti-colonialism, a national cinema that was inspired by Italian neorealism but had a creativity and experimentation all its own, was totally destroyed. So much was lost. And what was built in its place, uh, what was built on the mountain of corpses that was, that, that, that in which it was felled, are shopping malls and beach resorts and slums. And the film speaks to that. And I hope, I guess, that there will be an apology. There will be truth and reconciliation. There will be tribunals for the high-ranking commanders to be brought to justice, not for revenge, but as a ritual by which Indonesian society says, this is forbidden. This, this is something that must not be allowed to happen, much less be celebrated. And then there needs to be a political movement, a grassroots political movement against corruption in politics, against the use of gangsters by politicians. These are hard because every politician is corrupt and, and that's why they go into politics, as we see in the film. And every politician is using gangsters. That's how they become successful in politics. And there needs to be a movement for the redistribution of wealth. Not just compensation, but redistribution, a welfare state, so that the money that's taken from the so that the money that's been taken from millions of families that have been systematically impoverished because they've been designated as politically unclean and subject to political apartheid can be can be lifted out of poverty and the people who've and the and the money and, and the people who have acquired their wealth by stealing and terror then our, 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 this wasn't a very elegant ending for such a long speech, but there needs to be a fight for the redistribution of wealth in Indonesia. And these are big political fights, and these are fights that Indonesians, hopefully, to some extent, inspired by the act of killing and other stuff that's coming out now, can carry forward. Well, absolutely, and congratulations, and let's hope that 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 this film helps in some way towards that end. Now, just before we finish, is there anybody who I... I can't see all that well, but is there anybody who's had their hand out for ages? And no, I'd have noticed you. I would. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just wanted to ask a quick question about complicity. Um, you know, some of the scenes are still, some of the scenes within the film actually show things that are a borderline between what is acted and what is actually happening, like the shakedowns that the game are having. Um, and also, just a quick point that I want to make that uh, obviously, you know, the concern is 65, that it was all in the past, but all of this exactly with Pamela Panchasilla 
and everyone is happening right now in West Papua? Well, I think the film shows the extent to which oppression and stealing and extortion and fear continues in North Sumatra, but you're absolutely right that in Aceh and West Papua and until recently in East Timor, for at least for decades after 65, Indonesia has continued to commit these kind of human rights violations. Um, and they still do in, in, on a smaller scale. And in terms of complicity, I'm not a director who will stop at anything, you know, who will just do anything to get what I want. So, for example, when it was clear that Anwar, uh, sorry, that Herman and Safi were extortionists, that that was what they do for a, a living, and that we had the opportunity to film that, I said, shall we not film this? Maybe this is too, this is going to be scary, the, the frightening for the Chinese market sellers. They'll now think these men are so powerful that they... Um, yeah, that, that these guys have their own private TV station. They can boast about it on TV. Uh, and so, but my crew said, Josh, no, you must. We have an obligation now to film this because this is happening in every market in Indonesia every day. And so I said, okay, I thought about how can we do this with minimal impact. And I told Safit and Herman, look, when you're done, move along, and I'll catch up with you. I need to get a release form signed. But what I really did is I lingered back, and I explained why we were there. And that was stupid. In fact, I should not have done that when my, because it endangered everybody. It really, those men could have said something, and we could have really, my crew, who had no reason to be in danger, were in danger, but I somehow couldn't avoid it. I did it. It was a mistake. And I also paid everybody back, and it was a very expensive shoot because you see three but we filmed 50 so there's that Sim there's similar things like that throughout the film of course the village massacre is a place that looks tough I must say the violence there if you don't shoot through telephoto lenses and fire and smoke looks very fake <coughs> and the kids cry they're the kids of the of the Pantasila youth members in the scene they're the takes are short. Instantly, they're comforted. I don't. The ki I think the kids were all fine. They were. In fact, there's a scene in the shorter version of the film where you see them being auditioned for their ability to cry, uh, which isn't in this. It's something that's in so that we can speed up the storytelling about their method. It's because the film is 40 minutes shorter. Um, so I think they were okay, but I think there's real trauma there for the woman who's fainted. She's the wife of a of a Panchasila youth leader. But she's old enough to have memories of this time, and we don't know what those memories are. And Indonesians will see that and not see her as fainted. They'll see her as kasurupan, as possessed. And they'll see a ritual to, to get rid of ghosts. I, I suppose that's what you recognized, right? And, of course, there's, it's an expression whether we believe in ghosts or not. There's some kind of connection to a past there. The past is alive in the present there, and that's, of course, what the film's about. And the last sort of apology, if you like, is the Suriono, the stepson of the Chinese man. That's the other, the final, that, that's the final thing that deserves an explanation. When he tells his story about how, he, how his father was killed, or stepfather, he says, but he could be Chinese and be calling him his stepfather so that he's not seen as Chinese. When he tells that story, I was filming in another part of the studio with Adi. We had several, always many cameras on those big shoots. And I didn't hear the story. And in fact, I didn't hear the story till we came back from that shoot with 500 hours of material. I didn't hear this from that shoot. 
I didn't hear the story for a long time because I went to all the important scenes, worked through them first, then I went to the side conversations just to make sure I hadn't missed anything and lo and behold, I'd missed that story. And I was mortified because if I'd heard the story, I would have taken him aside and said, what are you doing here? No, don't tell me now. <laughs> Stay behind the camera with me, I'll give you something to do. And at the end of the day, go home and tomorrow, let's say you have a cold and you don't come back, you shouldn't be here. And I didn't do that because I didn't know. It was an error as well, an error of omission, not an error of commission, but an error. And when I was putting the film together, two and a half years after I shot it, when I was at the rough cut stage, I was really curious, why did he do this? What's going on? Because then he's in the talk show cheering along and he's in the village massacre scene, Kampung Kolam reenactment. So I called, I found an old call sheet with his number, I called him, but his wife answered and said that he'd passed away two years after the shoot from complications of diabetes. And I asked her, did he ever talk about why he was in the film? What, why did he do this? And he, she said, yes, he talked a long time, about, a lot about it, and for a long time after, wondering when the film was going to come out, and saying that he did this, he wanted to show the horrible things that had happened to him, as a, to, to his family. And in that sense, he wanted to be there. And if I'd known, he wouldn't be. And I think he was successful in that. And I would just say that these errors, these are actually instances of a situation that's much bigger than me, much bigger than us, overwhelming me. And, you know, you can't, it was the whole film, as much as an artist, I tried to retain some control over the proceedings and over the way it unfolded. I admitted earlier to you that I didn't know that Anwar would end up where he ended up. So everything was unfolding, and I didn't know be out of my control in a way, and that's what makes filmmaking interesting and, and important. But I think we all, with this film, we all felt like a tsunami had overtaken us, inundated, overwhelmed. We were having nightmares, we were having insomnia because we were afraid of nightmares. It was very tough. And I think you can't go into a situation where, which is akin to the Nazis having won and try and make a film honestly about both what happened and the human beings who did it and how they did it and how they live with it and how a whole society lies about it and come out totally unscathed and clean without lying to yourself and to the audience.